welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on books about place at ryanmurdoch.com. Nothing symbolizes freedom in America like the open road. It shows up everywhere, from films and novels to popular songs. Richard Grant spent 14 years wandering those roads, and he discovered a world of modern nomads, loosely knit subcultures of truckers, migrant workers, rodeo cowboys, and wandering tramps. Where did this uniquely American view of freedom come from? How did geography shape American nomadism? That's what we're talking about today. Richard's the author of Ghost Riders, Travels with American Nomads, winner of the 2004 Thomas Cook Travel Book Award, and one of the best books I've read this year. I think you'll find this an interesting follow-up to the conversation I had with Anthony Satin on the role of traditional nomadic cultures in shaping human history. A couple brief points of housekeeping before we jump in. As you've probably noticed, my travel schedule sometimes delays new podcast episodes. The best way to stay up to date with personal landscapes is to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, so you'll get new episodes the moment I release them. You can also sign up to my free email newsletter by going to www.ryanmurdoch.com. That's Murdoch with a K, and scrolling to the sign up box at the bottom of the page. You'll get updates about new episodes and about my upcoming book, as well as stories from the road that I hope will inspire your travels. What you won't get is spam or marketing crap. So pop by my website and have a look. But that's enough for me. You're here to listen to Richard Grant. We spoke about frontiersmen and Plains Indians, riding the rails, and the unique role of the Scotch-Irish in forging the American view of freedom. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So I really loved Ghost Riders, and I don't know why it came on my radar so recently. I guess I was living in Asia at the time that it came out. But I think part of the reason I liked it so much, um, apart from your pro style, which I really enjoy, uh, is that I could really identify with the person you described in the prologue. You say that you were living in a grim and squalid council estate in East London, broke, unemployed, fresh out of university, hating just about everything English. And for me, it was um, a crappy flat on Bronson Street in downtown Ottawa, broke, unemployed, fresh out of university and, and hating everything about the city. So I can understand why a place like that kind of drove you out on the road. Yes, I've been gone a long time from England, but um, I, I still have a sort of uh, allergic reaction to it in some sense. I was really unhappy there. I felt really trapped and confined. And um, it never occurred to me that I would I would live out my life in England. I wanted I wanted I wanted more space. I wanted more elbow room. I wanted more sunshine. I wanted more more freedom i guess as a young man that was my my ambition was not to make money but it was to find out how much freedom i could actually achieve on a kind of practical basis and that led me to the american west and a kind of um nomadic existence for several years yeah, that's something you hit on in that prologue as well. You said that I, I didn't want a career. Uh, wage slavery horrified me. And you also referred to writing as the perfect solution, a way to keep traveling and to retain as much personal freedom as possible. I, I can remember thinking these kind of things in my in my 20s and 30s as well. Of course, writing and earning enough money from writing can be di- very different things. And in that same interview, you talked about some of the some of the links you had to go to to get paid. The scorpions, I, I never thought of that. Oh yeah, that, I mean it's 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 hard being a being a freelance journalist, especially when you're starting out. I mean, to get the work is hard, and then to get paid for the work uh, was way harder than I ever expected. Magazines just wouldn't pay me. You know, my invoice would be sitting in there for six months, and they would be dodging calls and dodging emails. And so there was a I won't mention the name of the publication, but it's quite a august publication in Britain. Uh, were refusing to pay me, so I. I was living in this house on the edge of Tucson that had quite a bit of uh, scorpion activity, and I would kill the scorpions. And then my friend built this spring-loaded box, and I put about 25 dead scorpions in there, and then I mailed it to the accounts department in London. So when they opened the box, <laughs> scorpions showered over their desks. And I said, next time they'll be live. And um, payment ensued. So just I wish I thought of that. for the freelancers out there. 
Yeah, that's brilliant. So um, why would you, why are you so obsessed with America and American culture at that time growing up in England? Um, I mean, I was never a big TV and movie guy. I mean, I'll I'll watch a movie here and there, but it was more the music and literature that that had me intrigued. I used to be a DJ and um, a real music head, and I, I kind of followed American music back from, I was mainly into black American music, not exclusively, but uh you know i was around when hip-hop broke out and i wanted to know where that came from that led me back through funk and soul and ended up in the in the delta blues and i was yeah i was just always into american music in a big way and then um so i liked american writers more than i liked english writers what was it about them well they weren't obsessed with the class system in the same way so much english fiction especially was about the the nuances of the class system and um i think there was more of a sort of sense of adventure that i found in american american authors i had my youthful jack kerouac phase absolutely wince to read him now but um when 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 you when you're bored and restless sitting in london and you're 21 years old it, it seemed enticing wait i could just get on the road and uh, yeah, it seems like a great idea. Yeah. yeah. It, so who else were you reading at that time besides Kerouac? I mean, I was reading The Beats and, um, you know, Hemingway and Fitzgerald. And uh, who else was I reading? Like quite a few black American writers. I was into like James Baldwin and Richard Wright. Um, Zora Neale Hurston I was into. And then I was also reading the English travel writers at that time, like Bruce Chatwin and guys like that that was a really good time period for travel right yeah, yeah. and it, it 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 all conspired to push push me out of england and i just bummed i just bummed around america for years painting houses getting into relationships getting out of relationships living in a car mostly and i started writing letters this was back when people did that i started writing letters to friends in london one of my friends started working for a magazine he said look if you if you clean this up uh i can pay you money and publish it so that's how that's how i kind of fell into writing so in these early travels you said you came to see the history of the west as another act in in the drama or the conflict between settled peoples and nomads Uh, it seemed a useful prism to look through but it scrambled many of america's most cherished notions of itself one of the examples you give is the frontiersman the notion that they were the creeping vanguard of civilization, but you said that they rather that's what they were running away from. Yeah, I think I think it's pretty unmistakable that, that um, you know a lot of these guys were for, you know kind of born on the born on the frontier as it, as it moved west. And I mean, if you if you look at what Daniel Boone had to say, I mean, he was kind of conflicted because a he was on the one hand he was um, kind of a, a real estate surveyor who was drawing up plots of land and selling them but whenever settlement and civilization got too close he would move another 500 miles west to get away from it so he was both facilitating the spread of civilization but personally didn't like to be around it and this was the kind of profession he came up with well that and fur trapping were, were ways of making a living staying outside the that kind of grid work that civilization likes to impose on a on a landscape in canada the it was the fur trade that kind of mapped and and um spread you know european influence throughout the country but in america it seems like it was it was a combination of that sort of thing but also just these guys trying to get away from rules and and uh, settlements and the more it encroached on them the more they pushed yeah i mean it was interesting i think i'm trying to remember his name john winthrop i think was the governor of the massachusetts colony maybe but he was complaining about how many puritans would run off in the forest and live with the tribes rather than submit to all the rules and that 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 they had to submit to in 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 those puritan colonies the quote was he said many crept out through a broken wall meaning out of out out of civilization into into a looser and more nomadic tribal existence I suppose if many of these people had fled Europe and some of the constrictions of life in Europe to to go to America, then they start to see the same sort of restrictions creeping in there that would drive you away. 
it was very restrictive in those early colonies. I mean, another interesting fact on this topic is, so both sides, the European settlers and the Native Americans were both taken captives in skirmishes. And then periodically they would stage these uh, return the captive ceremonies. And the white captives had fallen into a pretty pleasant life with the tribes. And they did not want to go back to white civilization and all the strictures. And they had to be dragged, like kicking and screaming, whereas the native captives were just joyfully back to the tribes. I think, you know, from these little beginnings, there's this, there's been this notion of freedom in America that doesn't exist in Europe. The, the equation of, of, of freedom with open space and mobility and lack of, lack of rules. Where do you think this comes from? Well, I think it comes from that meeting of frontiersmen with Native Americans. I think you, you had a bunch of rootless people arriving, you know, they cut their they, they cut their ties to Europe. They arrived on a frontier and they found these tribes living in a way that that afforded individuals a lot of personal freedom, but also the support of extended family and tribe and i think it seemed very appealing i think compared to the way that anyone was living in europe at that time except maybe the uh landed nobility i mean they had they had a lot of freedom in europe but even 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 their life was pretty restrictive compared to you know some guy that is moving around with a tribal band and um you know, going on a six-month hunting trip and going to trade. And and the authority of the leaders in the tribes, it was most tribes, their authority was just their power of persuasiveness. They didn't have the power of punishment necessarily, which Europe depended on to enforce its, its systems. I've read about something similar with the Inuit tribes in, in Canada, northern Canada, that you might want to follow the, the best hunter because he was the best hunter, but you don't necessarily have to take his advice. Like there's no compulsion involved. Yeah. Yeah. It was the same with, with um, at least most tribes. That's also a characteristic of nomadic people all over the world is, is, is a high degree of autonomy uh, amongst the members of that society. And, and uh, they tend to be, um, What's the word? Not democratic, but egalitarian. Genetic yeah. people tend to be much more egalitarian than sedentary peoples. And it's interesting too the contrast between like we think of uh, personal freedom, at least in in the sense that I was thinking of it in my twenties, as just getting away from everything and being this lone individual, you know, off on the road somewhere doing whatever I want. But this this freedom that you're describing in the American West was deeply rooted in a tribe as well. Like you had to have a sort of a a group or a culture to belong absolutely. to you were free within that culture and they were free together but uh, you know yeah. contrasting with the lone individual is interesting yeah absolutely and not only was there in most of these you know nations or tribes not only was there a, a, a tribe to belong to but there was, a lot of them had clan systems as well so you you, you were not an autonomous individual in in the way that like some fur trapper walking around Wyoming in the 1820s was, you were very much, uh, they, they didn't think of themselves as lone autonomous individuals. They were part of a clan group, or an extended family group, and then part of, with a, with a tribal identity overlaid on top of that was, was typical. So did this clash then with the frontiersmen as they came out to these regions? Uh, it's interesting because it kind of depends on which era you look at. I mean, there was definitely a lot of skirmishing between frontiersmen, fur trappers, and uh, Native American tribes in the West. But there's also most of the early fur trappers, they married into the tribes um, and lived with them and acted as trading agents and carried on with their trapping. Uh, you know, and raise their children with kind of a foot in both worlds. And later on, when the land hunger became more extreme, you know, those tribes were just looked at as an impediment to, um, well, the, the idea that they were worthless savages who who didn't 
actually live in a place because they just moved across it they weren't improving it they weren't building fences or planting fields so they became more and more denigrated in the white thought system or that we hungered after their land whereas early on in, in, in the 1820s it was more people were more romanced by the idea of those tribes but by the time we really wanted to take over their territory we were starting to denigrate them i suppose because at, at the earlier time it was open-ended you don't know how far the west goes and there's all this space right. and then at a time when suddenly others oh, there's a fixed amount to divvy up then yeah yeah some of these characters you that you wrote about are incredible too this joe walker was that was quite a story said he covered more miles on horseback than any american before him or, or since i've never heard of this guy yeah he um so he was in some ways he was quite typical in that he came from a scotch irish background the scots who had moved to ulster who raised so much trouble in ulster that they got squashed down by the british and then went to uh mainly pennsylvania in the 1700s and then because they'd been kicked around and abused in scotland and ireland for so long they just wanted to get away from centralized authority so they they moved out to the frontier he was born like he, joe walker was born on the frontier into one of these westering families they call them, the ones that would push the the frontier out and he became a fur trapper um but unlike his more famous counterparts he he never lost a man that's the most incredible he he was at large as a scout and a fur trapper um he he did his share of indian fighting even though he much preferred diplomacy as a way of getting 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 around but yeah he never lost a man which in, in that era was just extraordinary and then um after the beaver trapping era ended because they basically they trapped out most of the beaver beaver and gentlemen's hat fashions changed because the beaver felt was used in hats yeah the, the paris london fashion switch in headgear has these huge repercussions in like wyoming and idaho then anyway, he became a he started buying up horses in california and driving them all the way across American West to Missouri and selling them and then riding all the way back out to California I mean just immense distances on horseback very intriguing man because he was he was quite modest he didn't he didn't have as much swagger as some of those uh, mountain men did and he was sober which was unusual and he would take a tipple from time to time but he wasn't like one of these real roustabout guys and um yeah he married into the shoshone tribe took a shoshone wife and was very good at getting along with the tribes that was the real secret to the fact that he never lost a man he was good at diplomacy violence was always like an absolute last resort with him he was good at violence but he didn't think it was the smartest way to navigate the territory he much preferred to build alliances the thing that I found remarkable about him too was that he, he towards the end of his life he had the opportunity to settle down and get rich but he always chose to keep traveling yeah a lot of them were like that they tried to settle down they just couldn't do it even though they were old like they missed the they missed they missed like that call of the call of the wild or the yeah I remember it was actually a truck driver that said this to me but he said yeah he said my American dream is to burn down the house and saddle up the horse Oh, is this the guy that was making these long horse journeys? And he would take wire cutters with him and he would cut his way through fences when he found them? Uh it wasn't him, but he would he would go along with that that sentiment. Yeah, no, I ran into this guy who was he was a mountain man reenactor. He liked to dress up in buckskins and do primitive technologies. And but yeah, he rode a horse from I think it was New Mexico to California and, and back. And yeah, he would snip the fences and then repair them after himself. And he would just shoot. He had brought along a shotgun. He would just shoot birds and cook them over a fire. And that's uh, went all the way to California. It's a, it's a long way from uh, New Mexico to California. That was an interesting subculture as well. This um, mountain men, these reenactors, and 
how it all sort of devolved. They were, there were factions within the group and how it all sort of devolved into the gearheads and the guys who weren't practicing authentic culture, didn't care about the history. They yeah. just like the cosplay aspect of it. Any, any group of, of, of obsessive hobbyists like that, they tend to factionalize <laughs> and feud with each other. Well, one of the other things that surprised me, you mentioned here was the prevalence of Scot Scotch Irish roots in these um, frontier types. You said that um, of all the immigrant groups in America, they were undoubtedly the most footloose and the most con concerned with individual freedom and independence. And in my experience, their descendants still are. So why do you think that was? I think it's what they went through in, in Scotland. They were they were kind of caught between the Highland clans. I mean, they were, they were in Northern England and Southern Scotland. Uh, and, and they were... They were kind of press ganged into English armies and press ganged into Scottish clan armies. They were abused by both sides. They were always broke. They mainly lived as cattle drovers, and they uh, they never really got the chance to settle down in Scotland properly. So they started building temporary buildings when they were in Scotland because who knew how long they were going to be there? And it's, it's the kind of forerunner of the American trailer home is was you could be in southern scotland in the 1600s it's 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 a, it's a it's a rectangular temporary structure you know then they got moved to ireland to to act as a they were, they were supposed to like help with the with the with the troublesome irish that didn't like being colonized by the by the by the english but that didn't go well and then they got uh they got their arms taken away from them by the english which i think has a lot to do with american views on gun ownership i think you can trace back to the, ah, that's interesting trace back to the fact they were they were disarmed they were stripped of their rights uh even though like the way that they got married was outlawed so basically all they all they knew from central authority was was abuse and oppression and trouble and so they had this idea of, of the way to get the liberty that we deserve is to just get away from centralized authority and they were tough as nails too which helped on the frontier they were belligerent warlike people that believed in vengeance i mean i have good friends here in tucson that and, until i was explaining this to them they, they were just wondering about these they thought that they had these weird character traits I was like, no, these are cultural traits. It's like, tell me about your ancestors. And sure enough, they, they, you know, they, my one friend here, he, um, Austin, yeah, he comes from Scotch Irish cowboys in in New Mexico, but he's got this kind of fierce bristling side to himself that he never understood. He thought it was like a personality flaw or like a little, a little touch of mental illness or whatever. But he started reading about. I put him onto some books about the Scotch Irish people. He's like, wait, I inherited this as a cultural trait. So my grandparents came from Ulster. They immigrated to Canada in, um, in they were in their early twenties. I think they they got married, and my grandfather saw an ad in the window. You know, free passage in, in exchange for working on a farm for a period of time. And as far as I know, they never traveled after that. Like uh, my grandmother was especially a homebody, but at least one of my grand grandfather's brothers emigrated to Australia as well. So there did seem yeah. to be, and then I've you know I haven't lived in Canada. I don't know how long. Lived in multiple places, traveled a lot. So same, there is it does seem to be something that gets passed down. Yeah, and I think especially in the in the in the seventeen hundreds, that was when they you know they'd just been uprooted from one place, they just uprooted from another place. They land on this raw frontier in western Pennsylvania in the Appalachian Mountains, and they, I mean, though one reason why they kept moving was also the way that they made a living. They were kind of sloppy farmers. They, they were just clear you know hatch a clearing like run some pigs make some whiskey and then when they uh they didn't really take care of the land because they would just move on to the next place when the soil got played out there was always that huge continental expanse of land sitting out there in the direction of the sunset and then once once the once these people leave the forests behind and get out onto the open plains i mean the american west from Texas all the way to California is a classic nomadic landscape. I mean, Wyoming looks like Mongolia. It's a landscape all over the world that have been used by nomads that 
it's difficult to stay in one place because the it's arid or semi-arid. You move on. If let's say you're hunting buffalo or bison, uh, you're always on the move because the bison are on the move to where the grazing is, or they're trying to get away from storms, or winter like fierce winters. You're you're always on the move if you're if you're a bison hunter, in the same way that you would be if you were driving sheep across outer Mongolia. Similar landscape. Semi-arid, cold in the winter, big, wide open. That's another myth that you busted, actually, that the, you said the cowboys and Indians on the Western Plains, from, from a nomadologist's point of view, were on the same side. Like They had the same sort of uh, philosophy of, of land use and the same feeling for freedom of movement. I think that would come yeah. as a surprise to a lot of people. Yeah, again, you have to be specific about the era. So the first cowboys, um, they drove herds of longhorn cattle from South Texas across the open plains up to the railheads in Nebraska and then up to Montana. And they, yeah, they lived a very, they lived in the saddle and they felt, a lot of them felt an affinity with the tribes that also lived on the saddle and wanted the same landscape. But then came people who wanted to fence off the open plains and make ranches and farms. And there was conflict between the cowboys of the open plains and what they called nesters, who were the people that wanted to sort of settle down on ranches and farms and build fences and fence off waterholes. And that was a classic conflict between nomads and sedentary people, between the cowboys and the settlers. And there was it became very violent. There was a lot of very violent conflict between those two groups. So, what was the importance of the horse to American nomadism? I mean, how did that change things when the horse showed up showed up on the scene? It, it was a, it was a revolution. I mean, the the Spanish brought the horse back to North America. Horses had evolved on the in the American West, and then they had gone across the Bering Land Strait into Asia. And then what, whatever was left in North America was probably hunted out. But anyway, there'd been no horses in North America for about 10,000 years when the Spanish arrived with these Arab horses. So the Spanish took him up to New Mexico, the very outposts of the Spanish Empire in the Americas. And horses started getting loose and forming feral herds. And then um, Native Americans learned how to ride them. Yeah, this this revolution happened. It was a nomadic kind of revolution happened once tribes all over the Great Plains and the Rocky Mountains became horse tribes. And they Most of them gave up farming along the rivers and in favor of a nomadic life on horseback as bison hunters and uh, what other you know bison wasn't the only thing they hunted but they basically they gave up on sedentary living and they started going around with you know teepees and um became nomads it was all because of the horse on horseback you could gallop alongside a bison and shoot if you were if you were a good horseman and and brilliant with a bow and arrow you could gallop alongside a, a bison and shoot an arrow into it and bring it down and it was a much more effective way could before that they would try and push them over cliffs and do fire surrounds it was like a but it was a more efficient and b it was very very exhilarating <laughs> to gallop alongside a bison and put an arrow behind its ribs as would these have been uh, Mustang horses, like more kind of not not the kind of big Arab race horses you think of, but from a cowboy movie or something, but something tougher and more like some, something like the Mongolian horses. Yeah, similar. Yeah, they were. I forget the lineage of the of the Mustang, but I think it was a horse that was brought to Spain by the Arabs from North Africa, so it was like hardy for arid arid climates. I think I think I have that right. And then that was the horse that Spain brought. I mean, the Spanish brought a few different horses, but I think it was mostly those mm. uh, Arab Mustangs, if I remember right. Mm. 
So does this parallel the importance of the of the car a century later? The role that the horse played and kind of the role that the car plays now in our vision of of American freedom? Yeah, I think I think I think there is a parallel. I mean the the association of, of the of the automobile with freedom is, you know, traditionally on, on an open road in the American West under a big sky. And and yeah, I think I think the car became another way of maximizing mobility in America. Yeah, the Amer- the road is the Amer- America's preeminent symbol of freedom. I mean, you see it all throughout the culture, the movies, the songs. The but one other thing I wanted to to mention too about the Scotch Irish before I forget um, an interesting note of trivia: the crackers and rednecks that they they gave us these terms. I had no idea about that. Yeah, so yeah, redneck. Uh, a lot of people think that term originated white people in the American South getting sunburned necks. But if if you if you, if you, if you trace the word back, you 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 get to Scotland and Northern England in the 1600s and 1500s, and it was a term for a fiery religious dissenter. They would get so fervent about their Presbyterianisms that their necks would flush. <laughs> and a cracker, which is another term for a redneck, and they the. It's often believed that it was because they were cracking the whip against the slaves in the in the American South. Hmm. Cracker was a term for a Scotch Irish braggart or an uncouth person in in Northern England and Lowland Scotland. I think, or again back to the 1500s, so these these terms crossed the Atlantic with them and became somewhat repurposed, but somewhat not. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Is it because they settled in these regions in the yeah. south and it's just kind of yeah. lost its original meaning? Yeah, from, <laughs> from, from Appalachia, I mean, they were the, the Scotch Irish people, were the main group who expanded to the south, to the west. So this would be back to <laughs> doesn't work with the hands, but they, yeah, they went south and west. Um, and they were, I mean, in the, in the, in the southern slave society, it was usually. Uh, people descended from the English who ran the plantations, and it was the Scotch Irish who were more the kind of enforcers. Uh, and they, they were basically, the, I mean, they were the, the poor whites in the in the South were Scotch Irish. Nearly all of the of Scotch Irish descent. You poor white trash. Yeah, yeah. So, what, what's your background? Your family's background? Um, Scottish and English. Yeah. So, do you feel that that's where some of this rootlessness came from? No, because my people were Highland Scots. They were, they, 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 they stayed in their glens and made whiskey. <laughs> Apart from the a love of whiskey, were you kind of an anomaly in your family, or in terms of setting off on the road like that? Um, no, because at least my father. I mean, he was he was born in India, um, in the kind of last gasp of the Raj. So he never really liked England, and he lived in, he lived in Malaysia and Kuwait, and I was born in Malaysia, and so we were we were sort of on the move in that sense. Live, I lived in what three different countries by the age of eight. England never felt like home to me. It just felt like this place I was cast into and told was was my homeland. What was it about America that felt like home then? Why did you settle there and latch onto it so early? It just, yeah, I just seemed to afford more freedom than Britain did. I liked all the open space and the and the big skies and that kind of freewheeling sense of America. That I mean, it's just part of the part of the reason why being in England is a drag for me is that every time I open my mouth, people are like, "Okay, so you're like middle upper middle class. You're from." You're from uh, the London area. It just get instantly pigeonholed by your accent. I just, at least in America, they just they think I'm some sort of Brit, but it doesn't have like a class overtone. Yeah, so it's a, there's a lot more regional um, Canada as well. Like it's, you can pick somebody up by their regional accent, but it doesn't really mean much more than that. Oh, you came from the East Coast, or yeah, but, but in Britain, it's all class as well. Speaking of these kind of wide open skies, you talked of Europeans being conquered by America and by the immensity of its of its geography and the nomadic cultures they found there. What was it about geography that um, 
that did this or that shaped shaped American nomadism in that sense? Um, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, aridity. The American West, which is the kind of where nomadism really flourished, is an arid place. Um, there's always a shortage of water. So, as I mentioned, the, the bison are always migrating to find new grazing. Um, and then, you know, the water sources are spread out too. I mean, the West has a kind of ladder of rivers going east to west across it, at least the plains does. And so um, in, in an arid landscape, movement is always encouraged or movement is always necessary. You, if the rain doesn't fall, it's hard to just sit in one place and raise a crop because uh, it's not good territory for farming. But if you want to drive a herd of animals across it or you want to follow a group of grazing animals or say you're Joe Walker, you want to move horses from Missouri to California, you just have to keep moving to survive, essentially. And it just comes down to aridity. And aridity also explains why the sky is so big, because there's no, there's no moisture particles to mist it up. And it also explains why there's so few trees, why you get these big open desert or arid plains environments, because there's, there's, not, enough, there's not enough rain for trees. And so without trees, you get to see that much further and it creates this, creates space. Aridity creates space and the feeling of space. And there seems to be a certain type of person that that appeals to, right? You said that um, a fascination with deserts and wandering tribes has been a recurrent phenomenon among kind of misfits of European civilization. What What's the appeal of these places, of desert places? I guess it's the opposite, isn't it? Britain's such a, or England's such a soggy little country. It's everything's so small and, and constricted and um, weighed down by tradition and history and manners and nomadic desert living is the opposite of that. It's wide open. It's libertarian. It's, it's to do with space and movement and it's not to do with tea and slippers and some little rain-lashed flat in uh, moldy little rooms in moldy little rooms sky the color of a tea bag <laughs> that was a great description <laughs> so is that what is that what first appealed to you the deserts yeah i like the the yeah i remember the first time i drove west was with like three young guys, you know, that I'd met in Philadelphia and we we took a car west and I remember we got to the the Texas Panhandle, which is this high plateau, like semi arid desert plateau, and I felt I got out of the car and I just felt dizzied by because you could see for, you know, hundred miles in all directions and the sky had just seemed to have like lifted up and, and grown. And I found it very um powerful and, and exhilarating and also sort of liberating in a sense. I was like, oh, this is, I've got plenty of room at last. Something about that landscape. That's the first place I saw the desert was the Southwest in Arizona. Like I had a, a guy I grew up with in Canada was living down there and I went down there for like you know, Christmas vacation from school. I thought I wasn't really that interested to go, but it's a free place to stay. So I went and I remember getting out of the airport and seeing the cactus and just that that's rocky arid landscape and i was completely hooked i ended up going back there after yeah. for took a greyhound bus from uh the canadian border down to tucson and and uh, stayed there for a month drove around you know hiked in the deserts and kind of went on to have an obsession yeah, with I these mean, places I've, I've worked i've now spent more of my life in southern arizona than i ever I have anywhere else in, including you know growing up in london it's interesting too that you moved to Mississippi and then came back to Arizona. What prompted that? Well, my wife's from Tucson. Um, she was getting homesick, but I was kind of getting homesick too, even though it's not really it was kind of like my adopted home. But I was, I was really missing just the, the feel of things in Southern Arizona. That just the light and the, I, I really like the food here too. It's like this. It's got. It's this. 
Sonoran Sonoran food. It comes from a particular state in northern Mexico, but it spilled up, spilled across into southern Arizona. So I missed like the roasted chili. I missed I missed the fire in the food, and um, I missed hiking and camping and the big skies and the. I found Mississippi very very interesting, but after I was there nine years. But it was constrictive too, in a, in a, compared to Arizona, in geographically or in a social sense. Socially, it's it's much more conformist. Everybody everybody kind of knows each other, and um, you know it's a very God fearing society as well. There's plenty of churches in Tucson, but it's nothing like the Bible Belt. So that that got to feeling. Uh, the the pressure of, of religious conformity. Yeah, I'm not I'm not a Christian. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't know. Somewhere between an atheist and an agnostic. I'm not I'm not confident enough in my atheistic tendencies to go all that way. But I you know I don't I don't I don't go to church. So it was that and yeah and it's quite um, stratified in a class sense too in the in the in the south. As, as strictly as uh, as in England, or is it more to do with race relations? No, but, but, but reminiscent of, and then, and then obviously the race thing. I mean, you live in Mississippi, and that's really, if you want to know about American racism, that's a really good place to learn about it because it was just way more complicated than than I expected. Yeah, this is what I found so interesting from from your book, um, Dispatches from Pluto. That's just how complicated this was. It's just it's not yeah. what you would imagine going into it from outside. No, we 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 had no idea what we were getting into. We my wife, my now wife and I bought this old farmhouse in the middle of nowhere in the Mississippi Delta and just uh got to know the place. But one of the hardest things to understand was the way that race relations worked because and just where we were, Pluto, Mississippi, these black families and white families had lived alongside each other for five generations, not in an equal way, but in a very close way. Well, I remember going to this funeral. It was a funeral for a black woman that had worked for the white family. And uh, the white family were all invited to the funeral and given a kind of a, a good seats at the funeral. And then the funeral was all about how black and white had come to an understanding and had kind of got past a lot of Mississippi's racial history in this relationship between these two black families and everyone, all the white people wept over this woman. And then black and white, after the funeral, they separated and went to separate wakes, one of which was all black, one of which was all white. So I was like, wow, this, this is not cut and dried, right? And then the... The white family, who were our neighbors, in generations past, the black family had named their children after the kind of white matriarch and patriarch. But now that process had gone in reverse because one of the white men had basically been raised by a black man because his own father was an alcoholic and a bad father. And this black man who worked for the family had taken him under his wing and really raised him up. And so now the white man and the white man's daughter, they were naming their children after the heads of the black families. So it was just, it doesn't mean to say this was an equal relationship, but it was a very close and complicated relationship between black and white. Because the thing I wasn't expecting is that, is that love can coexist with prejudice. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's how intertwined some of these families were. Yeah. But at the same time, they're... they're uh, one person wouldn't eat at the same table as another person, or there was still this this ingrained sense. There of, was a of sense, of, yeah, there, but there was definitely love and and respect and a, and a and a close bond that ran in both directions. But both peoples were, you know, also had inherited this history of segregation, so they were very close and very far apart at the same time. Which I just thought there would be bigotry, but it's way more mm. complicated than that. Yeah, that's what makes the book so fascinating. So how, for you as an outsider, how how much leeway did you get into kind of navigating in both of these worlds? Because you kind of don't, you, you fit into these categories, but you kind of don't. Yeah, no, it was very useful, actually. Um, well, fortunately, a lot of uh, white Mississippians, uh, 
like like Britain, you know, they're they're Anglophones. They they they're kind of um, they they're, they're charmed by Englishness. Um, a lot because a lot of the uh, landowning families there have have roots in England. Um, so so that was like entree there, and then as far as black society went. I was like a kind of novelty white man. And that gave me more access than I would have got if I'd been a white Mississippian, I think. Especially once I got to, once I made like real black friends, they would open up to me in a way that, because I wasn't like implicated in the system in the same way. I remember talking to this, talking to this one black guy that he just, he just pitched up on a, front porch he was just like moving through the area i can't remember what he was doing but we just started chatting and he and he says he says he says i can tell that you're not from around here and i was like how can you tell is it is it it's the accent right he says no it's like you look me straight in the eye like it's no big thing you know on the other hand i mean england england was heavily implicated in plantation slavery you know, its plantations were in places like Barbados and Jamaica, uh, but but it was the it was the Brits that came up with really came up with the system, the most brutal system of slavery ever devised, which was sugarcane plantation slavery, and then it was Brits who took that to South Carolina and the Deep South and instituted. It's interesting that nobody associated you with that. No, not not many people know know that know that history. I was certainly never taught it growing up in Britain. I just, I'm curious and I read books and I, books lead me to other books. And living in, you know, I wrote, the, the last book that I wrote was about Natchez, Mississippi, uh, which was, had more millionaires than anywhere else in the US, not just per capita, but by number. There were more millionaires in Natchez, Mississippi than in New York City on the on the cusp of the, Civil War because it was the really the head of the uh, plantation cotton slavery. They lived in these huge mansions and they sent their children to coming out parties in Paris, and they just got stinking rich. And then you know it all went to hell in in the Civil War. But those mansions were spared because uh, Natchez was unionist. It didn't it didn't fight with the South. It thought the session was a mistake. So it invited the Union Army in, and they spared the mansions. And now you've got this weird kind of upper-crust society that takes place in these old antebellum mansions in Natchez. But because the town was built on slavery, I wanted to I wanted to educate myself about slavery. So I did a lot of reading about slavery in preparation for that book. If I were, if I were to swing my computer around, you'd see like the line of books about slavery and black history that went into that book and you'd see another line of books about nomads and frontiersmen that went into the ghost riders book so I'd, i like to i like to i like to do a lot of reading before i write about a place yeah 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 me too it's the same that's what makes it so interesting you find an interesting place like that get your hooks into it and the more you dig the more uh right the more complicated you find it is and the, the more it's never what you imagine it would be going into it this this was something that was interesting about the nomad thing too. Speaking of that, you said you you kind of described your your American travels as memories strung out on a single cord of highway, fourteen years long and headed nowhere in particular. And and the people you encountered were a roadside culture of wandering rootlessness, not a community, but an aggregation of loosely knit subcultures, kind of crossing and recrossing the same lines on the map. That's that's something I didn't expect. All these sort of layers of um, subcultures that you encountered, some of them quite strange. Yeah. Yeah, I would have never known about them if I hadn't been wandering out there myself. I wanted to ask you something. You said you had a you said you had a guest on that was talking about the contributions of nomads to culture and civilization. Are you are you able to summarize that super briefly? I'm just curious. Freedom of movement, uh, freedom of trade, the the way that that the the plains nomads in in, in the Eurasian steppe. Uh, spread ideas as well as um, yeah, as well yeah, as trade yeah. goods. So religions and new new ideas swept in, and how also they they played a role in uh, revitalizing societies that have become stagnant. So 
so a society starts to kind of become yeah, encrusted yeah. with civilization and rule bound and and begins to kind of uh, smother under its own stagnancy, and then the barbarians would sweep in and and change things up again. So they they sort of played the role of kingmaker as well in that sense. Yeah, interesting. I would have. I'm, I must. Is is that? Can I listen to that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I'll send you the link after. Yeah, it was really interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to contrast those those sort of historic cultures that we kind of think of as dying out, you know, or are, are long gone from uh, from the world today with with the kind of people that you saw that are still living these kind of unsettled existences like migrant workers or um, ranch hands and rodeo cowboys and truck drivers, I guess the obvious one. Yeah, I, mean, I think I think it's interesting this 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 idea of nomadic retirement that I mean is in Canada too is I mean I'm I I traveled with these people. I mean they you know, they lived a sedentary life and they raised their children and they, they kind of lived by the book. And then when they reach retirement age, you know, when uh, coming from Europe, I associate that with like settling into your armchair. They sold their house, left their community, bought a motor home and they just wanted to cruise around the American West for the rest of their days. That's a pretty radical thing for a grandparent to do in historical terms and it's 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 that old call of the road thing right yeah we said the rv has become has replaced the teepee as a symbol of american nomadism yeah i think so i like to go out to western arizona in the in the winter time they they congregate and they circle their rvs like wagons and they'll be like a fire in the middle and it'll be all these you know all these retirees having a cocktail and um so basically do they do they escape the horrid weather in canada and stay there just for the winter season and kind of in the same place or are they moving around as well they move around i mean some of them will will you know stay in the same place for a month or maybe two months but mostly they they, they it's like a there's various sites that they will move around to in the southwest during the winter and then when the heat comes on down here then they'll go north again you know there's campgrounds and there's gatherings and there's clubs and but they it's also you see you see on the on the rvs you see that whole iconography of of of, of, of western nomad I and mean, there's like horses and pictures of native americans and and like bison and all these all these symbols of, of that kind of um freedom of the american west that that we associate with nomadism it's like a decal on a on an rv yes it certainly doesn't mimic the hardships of those times that's some of these things are pretty uh, luxurious they're amazingly luxurious it's interesting how these subcultures all seem to kind of gather together it kind of comes back to what you're saying before about how um, for nomads to survive, they sort of relied on a tribe and a group of like-minded people. Because you see the same thing. You talked about some like rodeo cowboys and these rainbow gatherings. That was one of the strangest things. Is that still going on? These rainbow gatherings? I think so. I'm not sure, but yeah, it's just it's basically um, the rainbow tribe. Yeah, sort of hippie-ish, sort of Grateful Dead type people that. And some of them, some of them wander full time. Most of them don't, but then they have these gatherings in the national forest every summer. And yeah, it reminded me of those, you know, the way the mountain men would get together for a rendezvous and have a have a have a kind of celebration and do some trading. And I suppose that that Burning Man um, festival was a bit like that, or probably was in the beginning. I've heard it's become corporatized now and. Yeah, I've heard that too. I, I went there early on, and it was it was it was pretty wild. Those early um, Burning Man, I mean, there was a lot of guns. Oh yeah, yeah. I never expected that. Like, well, it was it was to it was to keep the cops away. Like people wanted to have more guns than the cops. It was quite effective. And I remember there there was this one guy. You remember those Somali technicals? It was like yes, a, yeah, yeah, a jeep with it. There was guys that had those out there, and I remember them like lassoing like the Porter Johns and like dragging them across <laughs> the lake wow. bed. People screaming inside. It was it was edgy. I guess it's got a, a lot more corporatized, but that wasn't really a nomadic gathering. That was just a gathering. The rainbow the rainbow gatherings had this 
nomadic core of people that would get around in vans and some of them rode freight trains. I mean, there's still a lot of people out there riding freight trains right now. That's another thing that I found really interesting. Like anybody yeah. who's, who's uh, bought a Tom Waits album thinks about doing that. I mean, I've, I've dreamed about doing that when we were teenagers, but. Uh, I, mean, I did it to, to write about the people riding the freight trains. So you did it specifically to write, or would you, did you travel that way before you started deciding no, to write I about this? I, I, I don't like riding freight trains that much. Um, it's it's hard, man. It's cold and it's uncomfortable, and they rattle and they bounce your bones around. <laughs> yeah, I was doing it to write about the people who 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 live that way, and I've got friends that do it for do it for fun or do it for more than fun. It's more like uh, part of part of their life. It's just a way to live outside society on the freight trains. Again, it's a it's a form of freedom that it's it's a trade off between security and comfort, and and the freedom to roam around on freight trains. Yeah, you said that traditionally hobos had ridden the freight trains to find seasonal work, but and it had always been kind of a rough and dangerous and drunken lifestyle, but. Uh, with the arrival of Vietnam veterans and other kind of 60s and 70s casualties, the the culture of the rails became a lot more um, nihilistic and more dangerous. I've, I've met some freight train riders not that long ago. I think it, I mean, it's very druggy out there. There's a lot of hard drugs and like serious drinking, and it, it, I think it is. There's a lot of nihilism there, a lot of a lot of the young people that are, at least the ones that i've met you know coming from very bad family backgrounds and they're just running away and uh oblivion seems to be pretty popular out there when you were writing about the hobos and the hobo mafia which was really interesting you said you took a, a look at your box of notebooks that you accumulated while researching all these different subcultures and uh, you're right that uh, it occurs to me that the contents of this box would make better ammunition for a sedentary propagandist than a defender of nomadic living. It'd be all too easy to hold up these notebooks and declare that the American road is tawdry and depraved, the last refuge of scoundrels, wastrels, mountebanks, and lunatics, and that the American rails are even worse. So what redeems these nomads and these nomadic subcultures? Like, Why, why are they necessary or important today, or are they? Uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, not that they necessarily need need redeeming, but I guess what I what I really appreciate is that they're able to exist. Like in Europe, just can't do that. It's too. It's it's like there's enough room in North American society and landscape that these groups can exist out there and pretty much do what they want. And you know, it's kind of up to them what they want to do but I, I just think it's uh i think it's really significant that, that there is the freedom to go and do that to go and live on the freight trains for you know your entire life or 20 years i mean i met guys been riding trains for 35 years it's illegal but it's not really enforced much and you know they have some low-grade scam, like they're drawing social security under three different names or something like that. But you know they're basically subsisting on what they can find in dumpsters and like maybe a can of beans from time to time. I just think it makes makes life more interesting too. Do you think it'll ever go away in America? doesn't seem to be going away. I mean, they've got all this like van life craze going on right now. That seems like half the people I know are buying like camper vans and talking about doing that full time. Um, yeah, it's funny you go to a campground in Arizona now. Like, I'm, I feel like I'm the last person in a tent. Everyone's in these like van conversions and, and the, the the senior citizens are getting on the road as much as they ever did, if not more. So now you've got baby boomers uh, getting into their RV years. And you know, obviously, in the sixties, the the road, the romance of the road was kind of rekindled through Steppenwolf and all of that sort of. Thing. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think that generation is 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 going to keep the RV, the RV salesmen happy. We also have the, the phenomenon of digital nomads too. When I lived in Malta for a number of years, and a lot of people were 
were living that sort of lifestyle where uh, the borders that they were trying to escape were um, tax systems and uh, that, that sort of residency period where over six months they started to become taxable in a place. So they'd move around from oh, place yeah. to place. Um, there were ways to get kind of get around all of that as well. Living in places depending on climate or they didn't seem to have sort of a circular nomadic yeah, yeah. route, but they were sort of a loose tribe in that sense, working from coffee shops or whatever. So there does seem to be an element of it globally, but it's not the same as that that freedom of the big open skies yeah. that you see in North America. I mean, there's there's, a, there's interesting research saying that nomadism is a genetic trait. They've they've identified a gene for it, like wanderlust gene. It's carried by fifteen percent or something of people. But I think what if if that's true, which it, it seems like it, the the research is pretty solid. That's like one half of it, because then the, the other half of it is you need to have that the opportunity to indulge that the last or and obviously North America is a good good place for that. That's pretty interesting, as it certainly would seems to be the case with the Scotch Irish, and then the Scotch Irish meet this landscape, and right. that magical combination kind of happens. There's a guy in Florida called Dave Seminara. He uh, writes extensively about that whole genetic research into Wanderlust. But then to his disappointment, he, he's, he's a big traveler, and to his disappointment, he turned out not to carry that gene. <laughs> <laughs> the, book, the, the, book is, the book is about these like ultimate travelers that try and go to every single country, and, and but he explores questions of restlessness and Wanderlust. In, in his book. Then when you run out of all the countries, then they start to get into the dependent territories and like subdivided I mean, regions. You're talking about like obscure little like outcroppings of rock in like yeah, the, yeah. you know the in the in the South Atlantic, you know. Uh, I can understand Pitcairn Island or some of these places, but uh they, they get even gets, more obscure. It gets really obscure and, and, and then you have to get into like really bad war zones and you know Central Africa and in the end, you kind of concluded that um, in the book that wanderlust is just a, is simply a human personality trait that it's called forth more frequently in societies with a tradition of wandering and restlessness and in places where it's easy to live a mobile life. Yeah, I think, I think that's what I was just trying to say. And, that, and that's why I was interested to read this Dave Seminara book because I'd, I'd come to that conclusion that it's a personality trait. People are just born restless, you know born a rambling man or, or to, to quote hank williams um and then there's all this genetic research of basically like shoring that idea up so at the beginning of um ghost riders he said i like to think i've tasted freedom but i also recognize the signs and snares of addiction after a while wandering generates its own momentum its own set of cravings phobias and justifications so did you in the end find a way to balance your own nomadic restlessness with some sort of settled life yeah, I mean, I'm fairly settled now, and I, I chafe against it uh, to a certain extent. But you know, I'm also I'm a lot older now, and I don't. It's like they just don't have the. I think I think my restlessness is just just not as energetic as it used to be. Becoming a father changed this. Yes, that changed it a lot. Um, yeah, I have a, a daughter that's turning eight next week, and yeah, I haven't. I mean, I haven't done any, I mean, I've traveled for work, but I haven't done any like rambles since he was born. I mean, I go on camping trips and hike a lot. So is an RV in your future? Or would you prefer to be riding the rails again at some point when you, when you reach retirement age? No, you know, my back's definitely not, not, not in favor of that plan. Yeah, I still find sleeping in a tent. But um, if the back gets really bad, maybe a van. Maybe 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 I'll join the the craze I've been making fun of. <laughs> a concession to to luxury. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Richard, for your time. The, the book is um, Ghost Riders: Travels Travels with American Nomads. It's a fantastic read. I really enjoyed this. I mean, it's one of my top reads of the year. I'm I'm amazed I didn't discover it sooner. All right. Thank you. Yeah, I was. I was just a whippersnapper when I wrote that. Right, so it still stands up, man. It's a really great read. Yeah, good. What's next for you? Um, I've got this 
I've just written a draft of a book about Arizona kind of um it's an odd sort of book it's kind of two for the price of one one is a very personal story of why me and my family decided to move back to, to, to southern Arizona and what happened how we made a life here and then the the other narrative in the book is kind of how Arizona politics went totally haywire between 2020 and 2022 uh it's uh you, you can't out crazy Arizona when it when it comes to politics yeah, you seem to be gravitating towards these sorts of places the working title for this one is a race to the bottom of crazy <laughs> that's great yeah okay we'll look forward to that well, thank you very much right thanks for listening to this episode of personal landscapes if you like the podcast please give it a rating on itunes and subscribe through your favorite app you can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on books about place at ryanbernard.com you'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show All donations are greatly appreciated.